0: It is time to answer some big questions about our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light, lasers, optics, and fascinating tech news. Each episode, you'll hear groundbreaking stories from around the world about the fibers of science, from its triumphant past to its audacious future. Brought to you by Photonics Media. Left off when the clock has started. You're listening to All Things Photonics. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. In today's episode, we'll be looking at the history of astral imaging from the early days of photography. You'll hear this month's editorial from senior editor Sue Petrie, and we'll also talk with USC professor Andrea Armani as she discusses her award-winning research on sustainable laser technology, carbon footprints, and a new style of global conferences.
1: This is associate editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. With COVID-19 now declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization and states of emergency declared around the globe, the photonics market is starting to feel the impacts of the virus. Global supply chains are beginning to slow, and prominent trade shows are seeing widespread cancellations and dropouts amidst concerns about the viral disease. The Gauss Center for Supercomputing has pledged its support for researchers studying COVID-19 by granting expedited access to computing resources, including access to petascale computing infrastructures. And finally, a team at Duke University is studying butterflies with wings that are 10 to 100 times darker than everyday black objects. Ultimately, the findings could help engineers design thinner ultra-black coatings that reduce stray light without weighing things down, for applications ranging from military camouflage to lining space telescopes aimed at faint, distant stars.
2: Hi, this is Sue Petrie, Senior Editor of Photonic Spectra. This is my editorial comment for March 2020. Missions errata, abridgments. The blog, Times Flow Stemmed, includes an anonymous entry called Nothing Compared to the Stars, which quotes a letter written by Carolyn Herschel. Herschel, who lived from 1750 to 1848, was the first woman to be awarded a gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society, and she, with her brother William, built England's great 40-foot telescope, the largest in the world for five decades. In the letter, Herschel says, William is away, and I'm minding the heavens. I've discovered eight new comets and three nebulae never before seen by man, and I'm preparing an index to Flamsteed's observations, together with a catalog of 560 stars omitted from the British catalog, plus a list of errata in that publication. I actually like that he is busy with the Royal Society and his club, for when I finish my other work, I can spend all night sweeping the heavens. Sometimes, when I'm alone in the dark and the universe reveals yet another secret, I say the names of my long lost sisters, forgotten in the books that record our science Agoniche of Thessaly, Hypatia, Hildegard, Katerina Hevelius, Maria Agnesi. In the UK, US, and Australia, March marks Women's History Month. And I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge with enthusiasm the recent and tremendous efforts being made to revise, correct, and populate the long-neglected public narrative regarding women scientists. Today, Twitter is aflame with news of girls' and women's STEM accomplishments. Optics and Photonics conferences now host, thanks to Jess Wade and Miriam Zarengalem, STEM Wikipedia editathons to make sure the permanent and digital records include women. Organizations such as 500 Women Scientists, WSTI Connect, which is connecting women in science, tech, engineering, and entrepreneurship, the Association for Women in Science, and SPIE's Women in Optics are building a new record. In 2020, we are luckier than the second-century astronomer Aga once labeled a sorceress. Laura Bassi, Ada Lovelace, Catherine Johnson, Jian Wu, Maria Mitchell, Grace Hopper, Rosalind Sussman-Yallo, Barbara McClintock, Maria Geppert-Mayer, Marie Curie, Gertie Corey, Lise Meitner, Rita Levy-Montalcini, the list of long-lost sisters is immense. Look up their accomplishments, from NASA to Nobel Prizes to nuclear physics. As you would learn a foreign language, articulate their names and accomplishments, say them out loud and in sentences. Remember how it feels in your mouth, Repeat often. Reference their names and accomplishments at home and in public conversations. Let's wake the silent narrative and be the bridge that carries it into reality. In this month's issue, Valerie C. Coffey, science writer, offers a look inside smart factories, page 28. Tracy Jones of Ocean Insight talks about the spectroscopy star competition, on page 34. And Andrea Armani, the Ray Arani Chair in Chemical Engineering and Materials Science at USC, discusses her first-ever Photonics Online Meetup. Additionally, Devinder Sayani and Ron Mell, Fiberguide, discuss metasurfaces and fiber optics. Hank Hogan writes about developments with metamaterials. Researchers Vijaya Kumar Anand and Joseph Rosen examine coded aperture correlation holography. And Francesco Mondorati of OptoEngineering reveals changes in telcentric lenses. Thank you.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Andrea Armani. She is the Ray Irani Chair and Professor of Engineering and Material Science at the USC Viterbi School of Engineering. Her team at the Armani Research Lab published their research discovery of drastically increased efficiency and sustainability for Raman lasers just a couple months ago. Dr. Armani, thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: You received your bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago, where you were the only woman in your physics major. Did that play a significant role in your education, or do you place any sort of value on that experience looking back?
3: Uh, So I I do. So I, I would say there's kind of actually two aspects to my education there, right? There's the actual classroom experience, but then I also was very fortunate and got to participate in research while I was there. And... It was actually that research experience that really shaped my undergrad education. Um, So during my first year at Chicago, I met a grad student, uh, Ward Lopes, who's now Dr. Ward Lopes, uh, who introduced me to research. So while my classroom environment uh, wasn't the best, the research lab I worked in was amazing. So it was very diverse. It was filled with a lot of wonderful role models, and that value was immeasurable. So without having worked in that lab – I probably would not have had the courage to apply to grad school, um, which set me on my current career trajectory. So while being kind of the only female undergrad, being in that research lab where there was a female postdoc and two female PhD students, that created a really good environment for me and a really good support network in terms of role models.
0: Do you think the dynamic for women in the physics field has shifted in any way from when you were an undergrad? Uh,
3: yes, it has changed dramatically. Um, so actually, I think the environment for women in all you know science, technology, engineering, and math fields or STEM fields has improved simply because there are more women, which has resulted in more support networks and more role models and more women in leadership positions. However, This is both kind of good and bad. Uh, When I talk to parents, I say this, um, because the students are in this incredibly supportive network while they're in college, uh, which is great. And while that's shifted in the past decade or so, the change outside of the university system has been much slower. So now there's a really big step function when they move from being undergraduates to moving into industry positions or national lab positions, where they go from, you know, maybe being 30%, 40% female to being, you know, now 5% female and so they can feel very isolated. And so addressing that change is now kind of the next barrier.
0: What do you think is that bridge between support in the university and then suddenly the drop off in the industry?
3: I think it's going to be leveraging various web resources. So having, you know, electronic mentoring networks, which I know IEEE does a really good job, and the National Academy of Engineering also has an effort to do so that if you can't find a mentor or resource within your organization, you can look outside of your organization. And actually, sometimes it's better to have a mentor outside of your organization, right, to have an unbiased third party to talk with and to get advice from. So sometimes actually having a, I call it a suite of mentors, um, is a good idea.
0: Now, going to your research, in December, USC Viterbi published your research team. Your research team's breakthrough in laser efficiency and the development of the surface Raman laser, and you managed to simplify the path of the laser by limiting the motion of the molecules, which you said was sort of like attaching a root to a tree. This was a, Passion project of yours, but one of the challenges you faced was converting incident light into emitted light. Can you break down the difference between those two different kinds of light and how the surface Raman lasers operate differently from the conventional solid-state Raman lasers?
3: Sure, and there there are a lot of questions (laughs) buried in there, Um, so I'll I'll try to get through that uh, step by step. So, in the broadest sense, incident light is simply light that's hitting a surface. However, in the present device incident light has a much more precise term. So if you take a step back to paint a picture of our device system, it's a microscale toroid, so it's, you know, shaped kind of like a donut. It's about 100 microns in diameter, so about the width of your hair, and it's attached to a pillar and light orbits around inside of the toroid and it partially interacts with the surface So to get light into the device, it's launched uh, using an optical fiber. So in this scenario, the incident light is this launched light. So then the question is, how does this incident light become emitted light? And this process is due to something called the Raman effect. So there's actually two types of Raman effects that can generate emitted light. The first is called spontaneous Raman scattering, and the second is called stimulated Raman scattering. In both processes, the device material or the device surface inelastically scatters the incident photons. Now, due to conservation of energy, which is one of my favorite physics principles, the photons usually have a lower energy or higher wavelength of emission when they're inelastically scattered. So how you go from being spontaneously Raman scattered to stimulated Raman scattered, uh, this has to do with the number of incident photons. So if you have a low number of incident photons, then the process is spontaneous. But if the material is pre-populated with photons, then the rate of photon generation, or the number of photons that are being created, is amplified. And this is called a laser. So this can be called stimulated Raman scattering or a Raman laser. So this is what we had. So in our system, the lasing can occur in two places, within the bulk material of the device, or at the surface of the device. So within the bulk, this is your classic solid state Raman laser. So within the bulk, the molecules are randomly oriented and this results in poor excitation efficiency and poor generation. But at the surface, we used a covalent surface attachment strategy, which means all of the molecules were basically grown off of the surface and they were all oriented with that incident light and this constrained the vibrational motion at the molecular level and improved the performance.
0: It sounds, I mean, that sounds so much that you went to a lot of planning. It's highly complex. I'm sure it wasn't a simple process to get to that conclusion. Can you talk about the planning and discussions that went into the design of this laser and what its impact might be for what you perceive as future applications?
3: I'd love to. And when you talk about, you know, planning and discussions, it's, it actually, you know, goes all the way back to that undergrad research I was talking about. So during my undergrad, I worked on uh, a project that's called self-assembled diblock block copolymers, which means you have, you know, two polymers, which or two, you know, stringy molecules that when you deposit them on a surface, they will self-assemble into a structure, into a pre-programmed structure. And, you know, While this is like an amazing field of research, it's not really what I do now, but the idea of being able to self-assemble molecules into pre-programmed structures always fascinated me. And then when I started doing integrated photonics in my PhD work, I always kind of had that self-assembly idea in the back of my mind, and I wanted to self-assemble polymer structures on the surface of devices. So it's the idea and the planning kind of started when I was an undergrad, which was a very long time ago, and we're just going to stop with (laughs) a very long time ago. Um, But the the hurdle, right, uh, was having a team that was courageous enough to follow me down this uncharted path of trying to self-assemble polymer structures on the surface of an integrated photonic device, because they're very different length scales. They've never been done before. So a lot of planning needed to be done, but also just a lot of flat-out, unplannable exploration, because there's a lot of things we couldn't plan for. We just had to try. Um, and so that's very risky. So it took me a long time just to build a team of people who were willing to just try um, and who weren't afraid to fail. And so that was actually the hardest part. It was just finding people who weren't, who weren't afraid to fail, um, which is often, you know, difficult.
0: That sounds like it was a marathon for you. You started in your undergrad, and then finally, this research comes out in your PhD. Was this like a putting the flag down moment, where you just elated and relieved to finally get to this point, or how did it feel for you?
3: It is incredibly rewarding. First off, you know, it's almost like a personal self-validation. Like I'm right. Like my idea isn't crazy. This is actually possible. But then also, it's. It's just really exciting to actually see something that I've thought about for so long and I've had this vision of in my head actually happen, right? Like, it's, it's kind of, you know, as if, like, you've, you've been dreaming of something for a really long time and you aren't sure it would ever happen, and then suddenly it does. So that's, that's rewarding. And then to go on this journey with, you know, my PhD students and postdocs, you know, just makes it all that much better and everybody who's a co-author on the paper with me, they all now have jobs. So it's it's doubly rewarding because I see all of them out doing great things. They've all benefited from this path as well.
0: And are you crediting this recent research with the employment of your colleagues now?
3: Of course, right? How you get a great job is if you do great work, right? They're They're intimately related. The only way to... To be successful in science is to prove you can do successful science. Um, So that's, you know, of course, one of the reasons why I had a challenging time convincing people to go with me on this journey is because they were literally putting their job security at risk. Right. So, and it it paid off.
0: Yeah. Sounds like it. And uh, you also, your research team has been working with portable diagnostics. We recently interviewed Idon Ozdan, and he spoke about his research at UCLA and his team their breakthrough using cell phones for portable diagnostics. Why would you say this research is an important topic or a trending topic? What do you see as its its critical application?
3: First off, it is an incredibly important topic. And I think the main reason is because for the past several decades, there's been this real focus on creating diagnostic systems with exquisite sensitivity really pushing to have single molecule detection limits and this focus came at a big cost of reliability making really expensive systems really complex systems having these gigantic instruments sample compatibility so some of the systems aren't compatible with blood or urine and just just a whole host of of issues however you know while these systems are great for getting like a nature or science paper at a certain point you have to ask when do you really need to detect a single protein and buffer? At what point is that going to be a useful measurement? So a lot of these instruments were invented that like, can't really be used in the real world. Uh, and it was this realization that launched the field of low-cost portable diagnostics. So what you know, he's doing, what other researchers are doing, and while these systems you know, don't get the high impact of you know, nature science papers, they do have real-world impact. And it's important to recognize that difference. And at the end of the day, you know, engineers are supposed to be aiming for that real world impact and being able to make instruments that will be able to operate in the field or in a hospital and have lower costs and be able to reduce our healthcare costs. And so that's why it's important is, you know, instead of striving to make instruments that don't really have a use to be able to strive to do things that could actually change society. And they're two distinctly decoupled goals.
0: Speaking of changing society, there's been this multiple industry trend towards sustainability and methods of approaching that concept. Even recently, uh, research teams in Finland were trying to get companies working in optics to be more sustainable. You actually are coming out of a conference in January uh, where you hosted it online which seems like it would be a sustainable concept. What inspired you to plan this event? And what about it do you think is the, uh, the crucial point of sustainability
3: for it? I'm kind of embarrassed to admit, but uh, how this whole event came about was actually a conversation on Twitter, which is my like dirty secret that, that I'm on Twitter. But the conversation on Twitter was about how academics need to reduce travel in order to reduce their carbon footprint, and how alternative ways to hold conferences need to be developed. And there, there were a lot of articles in 2019 discussing basically all of the bad things about academics, but there weren't any proposed solutions. And if, and if I have one pet peeve, it's when people just complain about something, <laughs> but they don't propose solutions to it. Because anyone can complain, right? It's super easy to complain. So I pitched an idea on Twitter and I was like, we should have an online conference and it should be free. Who wants to join me? (laughs) Right. You know, thinking like no one was going to respond. And a lot of people responded. Way way more people responded than I anticipated. So I, I started organizing a conference. And I thought it was great from the sustainability aspect. I also had additional reasons why I wanted to do it. Um, And some of my co-organizers also are on board with my additional ideas. They have other motivations. But for me personally, I also wanted to do it because I had recently come from a meeting at the National Academy of Engineering where one of the key points of discussion was trying to increase access to conferences for students because student cost of travel is really increasing. And so fewer students are able to attend conferences. So trying to just increase access to education. And then I just met with one of my faculty mentees. So at USC, we have a faculty mentoring program. And she had been complaining that in the spring semester of 2019, she hadn't been able to attend any conferences because she'd been on maternity leave. So I, I wanted to come up with alternative ways to solve not just the sustainability problem, but just a plethora of problems and hurdles. So that's, that was how the idea came about, and then it just kind of grew from there. And again, we, we made the whole thing free just to try to make sure everybody could come right, and attend.
0: And when you, when you posed that question on Twitter, did you expect a response?
3: I expected maybe like two people.
0: <laughs> so you're <laughs> dealing with not only planning this, but the overwhelming response that you got out of it. How did you whittle it down to these five co-sponsors that you have right now?
3: So I, I chose the organizing committee. Uh, so I chose my co-chair, Orad Rashif. So first, he's a postdoc. So he's currently on the job market. I'm just going to gonna pitch that. Uh, so he's currently on the job market. He's at University of Ottawa. And so I wanted to choose a co-chair who I knew would be an active co-chair, who I knew would actually work. And a lot of times, if you choose some super famous professor, they don't do anything, and I knew I was going to need help. <laughs> and also, I wanted to choose someone who I knew it would benefit their career and it will benefit his career. So that was how I chose my co-chair. And then the other professors I choose I chose for similar reasons. Two of them are currently going up for OSA fellow, so I chose people based on if I thought this would help them, not, you know, if they were super famous. I mean, they're all solid scientists, they're all famous, but I chose for very different reasons than OSA chooses chairs normally.
0: Mhm. Your, your priority was saying, how can I help the people around me rather than what can they give me? Right. It's very noble of you. When you're planning this event and the success that it had, I'm assuming you are expecting it to be an annual event. You're looking at 2021,
3: 22. So we're, we're actually, we, we had a lot of discussions about this. We actually decided we wanted to try to do this bi-annually. Um, so every six months wow. there, yeah, there were a couple reasons why we came to this conclusion. So we're thinking that we're going to change the topics. So I really, really wanted to have one of the topics in the January event be a bio related topic, whether it was like bioimaging or, you know, biophotonic devices or something involving bio. And I got outvoted. So we ranked all the topics in, in optics, and then I let everybody on the committee vote, and bio got voted down. So For your we own didn't event. Bio... Yeah, my own event. I got outvoted. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I, I don't know what that says. <laughs> <laughs> I clearly chose my committee members poorly. I didn't load correctly. It's okay. You surround um, yourself
0: with, like, yes people.
3: I, ex- exactly. I did not surround myself with yes people. <laughs> right, right, like, that clearly shows I didn't. And everybody on the committee knew I wanted a bio topic anyway. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so, yeah. So that's why I want to have another one so I can have my bio topic. You do it your um, way this time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. We're going to have a bio topic this time. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're going to do it again in like six months. Also, there we got a lot of emails from people who wanted to submit abstracts, and they're like, "Oh, you know, our abstract doesn't really fit into like one of your three topics. Are you going to do this again? Because our abstract would fit more into this other topic in optics. So there's interest because we only had three topics, and so there's interest to have other topics. Mm-hmm. You know, but the first one, you know, we fully admit was an experiment, and we wanted to keep it small because we weren't sure and you know, how it was going to work out exactly. We, we weren't even sure if anyone was going to register for it.
0: It's that crazy was, the response that it's already gotten.
3: Yeah. Our hope was that 50 people would register. Wow. And we ended up with over 50 hubs. So we created something called Palm Hubs, which are basically sites where groups of people can watch the event together. So almost creating like mini local conferences. So for example, at the Palm Hub in Los Angeles, students from Caltech, UCLA, and USC got together. So that was great.
0: Yeah. And what would you say, you know, we have these giant conferences. We have Clio and Photonics Plus. How is this conference mm-hmm. different? These uh, events you wanted to put on, why could they only be put on through uh, Palm and not through uh, these other conferences?
3: So I would say one of the huge differences is that it's just the percentage of student engagement. And this, again, gets back to travel costs and registration costs. So when I think about taking students with me to a conference, and actually this is a conversation I have you know, almost every three months, we start pricing out the hotel costs, the airfare costs, registration costs, and the average cost of taking a student to a conference is around $1,500 all in. For a grant, I will get $1,500 per year travel. Wow. So that's like one student
2: yeah.
3: per grant per year. Whereas about 50% of the registrants for Palm were students. And then that's not even counting the hubs, because one, one hub is one registration. And a hub is usually a student chapter, which means we're getting just a ton of student engagement. And these are students who normally wouldn't see speakers giving presentations. And the best way to learn how to give a presentation is to see a presentation. So it's really just getting student engagement and getting students involved in seeing research.
0: I want to turn the focus a little bit back onto your story. You've amounted Mm -hmm. a great deal of success early in your career and have been able to incorporate your interests of both physics and chemistry. What advice would you give to high schoolers or college students who also want to pursue a PhD or just want to make an impact on the world in some way?
3: Um, so I would say the the first thing is to discover what a PhD is. Uh, so <laughs> when I was in high school, yeah, so, so start, start, just learn, learn what a PhD is. So when, when I was in high school and my first few years in college, I didn't really understand what a PhD was. And the big message, at least in STEM fields, I didn't know that uh, you don't pay for your tuition. Um, So so that's a very important message. Uh, And I think a lot of times faculty forget that, that not every undergraduate knows that, you know, grad students get, you know, grad research assistantships, and they get tuition paid for, and that's a message that needs to be conveyed to undergraduates from like day one of their freshman year. But beyond that, I would tell students to make sure that they are pursuing something they're passionate about, which means they need to figure out what they're passionate about. So when I started my freshman year as an undergrad, and when I actually applied to colleges, I thought I wanted to do particle physics. And I, I had this kind of romanticized view of what particle physics was, Right. Because you see like the press releases, you know, like, oh, they discovered the Higgs boson. It's great. And you see like the champagne and you're like a thousand people celebrating together. But you don't really see what a particle physicist does like on a day to day basis. Uh, And so when I got to undergrad and then I fortunately had a T.A. who was a particle physicist uh, and he like took me with him to work for a day. And I didn't want to do that. Like I, I saw. What it was he one did bad day at like, work. Yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't want that day. <laughs> like I don't. Yeah, that that was not my idea of a fun day. So then I started looking around the physics department, and I figured out what my idea of a fun day was, and it was something where I was in the lab and building stuff, and you know, just getting my hands dirty. So it's very important to, you know, not be afraid. To admit you're wrong and what you think your passion is, because you could discover something much cooler. So get involved in research, and bounce around, right? Like figure out what you actually enjoy, and then pursue that. Because like you could find something even better that you didn't even know existed. So that's my my main advice. That's good
0: advice. Uh, you made a statement that the Raman effect was a Nobel Prize winning discovery and that contributing something new to the field was very rewarding for you. So I want to ask you, do you feel that your new developments might be worthy of a Nobel Prize in the future?
3: Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to be super clear. So Nobel Prizes are given to scientists for discoveries, like fundamental discoveries. Like, if you think about that, Raman discovered a beach. I discovered, like, a, a grain of sand on said beach. Hmm. So, yes. I mean, I, I did contribute a, a grain of sand, so I feel very happy about that. But I did not discover, like, a new continent.
0: I've noticed you're really good at analogies. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so, if we were to look at this grain of sand and the whole picture of the beach, could you give me a prediction of where you see the application of uh, the surface laser or the entire industry as far as lasers and nonlinear optics, whether it might be what you predict 10 years from now or even 100 years from now?
3: 10 years? I could see maybe the general concept could be used to improve laser efficiency because it's it's a general concept, right? So you don't necessarily have to use our device structure or our specific molecule. So it's translatable to other types of laser systems, but a hundred years from now, I have no idea. Uh, I think of a hundred years ago, all right, we didn't even have computers. And if you think about computers, how much they've changed the world and, you know, you can connect computers to laser systems. So imagine what thing there might be a hundred years in the future that could then be used to augment my laser, right? who, who knows? You know, we didn't have cell phones, you know, like, it's just, it's hard to guess. I remember when I was interviewing for faculty positions, one of the faculty members asked me to predict what research I was going to be doing, you know, 10 years into my faculty career. And and I just looked at him and I was like, well, the laser that enabled me to do my PhD research didn't exist 10 years ago. So how could I possibly guess what I'm going to be doing 10 years from now? Because there could be something amazing that's invented that will enable me to do things that I can't even imagine now. So, like, science moves really fast.
0: And finally, give me one thing that you think you're really excited about in the physics world, whether it's in your field or a separate field that you just have some interest in.
3: I'm really excited about, uh, so there's something called the Materials Genome Initiative, which has been around for a while, but they're trying to create a toolbox of structure function relationship for organic small molecules where you could say I want to have an organic material that has this optical property and this you know this optical nonlinearity and this refractive index and you hit enter and then it'll spit out what the structure should be and so then you can make that molecule whereas right now in chemistry you basically take a iterative approach You know, you make 100 molecules, then characterize them all, and then choose one. And you can imagine that experimentally, that is very expensive. So if you could do this computationally, it would be a lot cheaper and faster. So having that computer, basically computer program, if you are somewhat not polite, (laughs) um, but but having that system, having that toolbox or toolkit, uh, will greatly enable integrated photonics research right, because suddenly we don't all need to be super talented organic chemists. We just need to be able to make one molecule, right? And then having that as a toolkit will enable all kinds of really interesting uh, discoveries. And right now, the chemists have preliminary data on super simple molecular structures, but the more complex ones, they haven't quite nailed down yet. But where this becomes really interesting is when you can couple that with machine learning. So you have the super simple structures, which can be validated with experiments. But then if you plug that into machine learning algorithms, you could then perhaps predict non-intuitive structures. So that's where I'm really excited.
0: It sounds like all that, everything's connected there somehow.
3: Yeah, everything's connected. And having all of those new materials will really enable my research to go in new directions in terms of device performance and device efficiency. So that's what I'm super excited about right now.
0: That's Dr. Andrea Armani. She's the Ray Armani Chair and Professor of Engineering and Marketing Science at the USC Viterbi School of Engineering. Dr. Armani, thank you so much for joining us today on the show.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: We've been studying black holes for so long that sometimes it's easy to forget that none of us has ever seen one. Franz Cardova, the director of National Science Foundation. He said that at a press conference back in April of 2019, a few days after astronomers took the first picture of a black hole. Black holes have puzzled astronomers for years. They're massive yet invisible. You can talk about the elephant in the room, but you can't talk about the astronomical hole the size of an entire galaxy. Yet the effect of their gravity on objects around them and the gravitational waves emitted when they collide reveal their presence. To capture the photo, scientists set up a network of telescopes, known as the Event Horizon Telescope. With the telescopes, the scientists used a technique to capture faraway images known as Very Long Baseline Interferometry, or VLBI. Each telescope used for the network had to be highly synchronized to within a fraction of a millimeter using an atomic clock locked onto a GPS time standard. According to NASA, this degree of precision makes the network capable of resolving objects about 4,000 times better than the Hubble Space Telescope. The famous photo in the end showed a ring of photons bent by the gravity around the black hole, revealing the shadow of the black hole, or what astrophysicists call the event horizon. The event horizon is defined as a theoretical boundary around a black hole beyond which no limit or other radiation can escape. In other words, it's the point of no return. In researching for the story, I came across the 1997 quote classic event Horizon from Paramount and Paul W.S. Anderson. The movie takes place in 2047 when a spacecraft that vanishes years earlier suddenly reappears and a team is dispatched to investigate it. The ship's experimental gravity drive generates an artificial black hole and uses it to bridge two points in space-time. That probably has nothing to do with our story, but it does bear mentioning how famous this term is. In fact, it dates back to 1784, when John Mitchell first proposed the event horizon, saying that near-compact massive objects' gravity would increase to the extent that even light cannot escape. Turns out, he was right on. This is exactly what Shep de of the Harvard-Smithsonian Institute of Astrophysics was talking about when he observed his team's findings. Quote, We are delighted to be able to report to you today that we have seen what we thought was unseeable. What you are seeing is evidence of an event horizon. We now have visual evidence of a black hole. Taking high-resolution colorful pictures of the stars is now a mainstay of astronomy research, whether from ground-based telescopes or instruments like the Hubble Space Telescope but this wasn't always the case. Astrophysical photography has taken various forms over the years, evolving rapidly from simple origins. And it all started thanks to Louis Daguerre. Before the invention of photography, astronomers had to sketch what they saw in their telescopes by hand. Astronomers made copies of observations by redrawing the original illustrations, which allowed errors to creep in. In 1814, a Frenchman named Nisophore Niepce began experimenting with ways to record light, and managed to transfer an image to paper two years later via a camera obscura. By 1822, he had figured out how to make such an image permanent by capturing it on a flat sheet of polished tin coated with bitumen. In 1834, French painter and inventor Louis Daguerre, who had worked with Niepce briefly before his death in 1833, discovered how to reduce exposure time to around 25 minutes Legend has it that Daguerre accidentally broke a mercury thermometer, giving him the idea that a shorter exposure time would produce a very faint image, but this image could be further enhanced via a chemical process involving the vapor given off by mercury heated to 75 degrees Celsius or 167 degrees Fahrenheit. Daguerre then adjusted the image so it wouldn't be sensitive to further exposure to light by rinsing it in a solution of table salt. But the surface was still prone to tarnishing, so most daguerreotypes were sealed under glass before being mounted in a small folding case. Daguerre had failed to find private investors for his work, so he approached the French Academy of Sciences on January 7, 1839, about his invention. Initially, he withheld the specific details of the process, revealing the secret only to the Academy's secretary, Francois Arago. By August, Daguerre apparently offered his process as a free gift to the French government in exchange for a modest lifetime pension, but, you know, still free. In England, Daguerre obtained a patent so that only licensed photographers could use his process. Daguerreotypes became wildly popular. Abraham Lincoln and Emily Dickinson had their images captured in Daguerreotypes, and the process enabled the first photojournalist to document the American Civil War. Still, images never showed people or carriages because a long exposure time meant that objects in motion couldn't be captured. Daguerreotypes were also expensive, and the only way to produce copies was to use two separate cameras side by side. An Englishman named William Henry Fox Talbot invented a rival technology, the calotype, which produced paper negatives of poorer quality than the daguerreotype since the images tended to darken over time, but had the capability to produce an unlimited number of positive prints. His process relied on using toxic chemicals, and he also patented his process, which limited the commercial success of the calotype. Photography studios began springing up throughout Europe in the 1840s. By the mid-1860s, London's Regent Street boasted 42 photography studios. In America, there were 77 in New York alone by 1850. It was astronomer Johann Heinrich von Madler who coined the term photography in 1839, combining the word photo, meaning light, and graphy, to write. Astronomers quickly embraced the use of photographic plates because of their good resolution and their ability to make much larger images. Louis Daguerre is believed to be the first person to take a photograph of the moon on January 2, 1839. Unfortunately, in March of that same year, his entire laboratory burned to the ground, destroying all his written records and much of his early experimental work, including that historical image of the moon. In 1850, John William Draper, an American doctor and chemist, collaborated with astronomer William Bond to produce a daguerreotype of a star. Then-physicists Jean-Bernard-Léon Foucault and Armand Fizeau improved the process to photograph the sun so that the sunspots could be seen for the first time. Inventors experimented with glass as a basis for negatives, but the silver solution wouldn't stick to the shiny surface. Several attempts were made to make a coating, including one with an egg white mixed with potassium iodide, which was then washed with an acid solution of silver nitrate. Another used gelatin instead of glass as the basis for the photographic plate. Eventually, all these innovations caught the attention of American inventor George Eastman, who founded his own company based on a machine he invented to coat photographic plates with an emulsion, automating the process so more photographs could be made more quickly. The photographic plate dominated astronomical imaging for much of the 20th century, boosted by the use of color filters, until the advent of digital photography and CCD cameras made such labor-intensive processing obsolete. Daguerre died on July 10, 1851, from a heart attack just outside of Paris. His name is among 72 inscribed on the Eiffel Tower. In 1990, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, putting into orbit one of the most remarkable scientific instruments that has ever existed. Thirty years later, we're seeing the unseeable, and reaching places, whether by sight or mind, previously unreachable. That'll do it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our guests, Sue Petrie and Andrew Armani. Our engineers are Alan Shepard and Brian Healy. Our featured artist is Kid Animal out of Los Angeles. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite music app. Thank you most of all to you, our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a story or you just want to reach out, you can email us at allthings@photonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Subscribe wherever you may be listening and never miss a new episode. You can also subscribe to this podcast on our website, com slash podcast, where you will find episode notes, links to complete stories you heard, and some interesting side stories that didn't make it in. I'm your host, Emmett Warren. You've been listening to a Photonics Media production.